it's May for literally one more day. And despite this month having been a hellfire for me with getting COVID for the third time, I am determined, no, excited to bring you this very special episode for AAPI Month. If you don't know what that is, it's Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. As I was putting together this episode, I realized we've had so many cool guests on the show. Not to toot my own horn, but I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to highlight some of my favorite clips from the Asian American and Asian Canadian voices we've had on the show. I think they all bring some really different and colorful perspectives on food and sustainability, and ones you might not typically hear in the farm-to-table world. If you are new here, welcome, welcome. We talk about all things food and sustainability. So if you're about that, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, let's get into it. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. It's May for literally one more day. And despite this month having been a hellfire for me with getting COVID for the third time, I am determined no, excited to bring you this very special episode for AAPI Month. If you don't know what that is, it's Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. As I was putting together this episode, I realized we've had so many cool guests on the show. Not to toot my own horn, but I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to highlight some of my favorite clips from the Asian American and Asian Canadian voices we've had on the show. I think they all bring some really different and colorful perspectives on food and sustainability, and ones you might not typically hear in the farm-to-table world. If you are new here, welcome, welcome. We talk about all things food and sustainability. So if you're about that, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, let's get into it. It is pretty magical when two different cultures meet and you get these new foods that never existed before. Like, for example, did you know that fortune cookies actually came from Japanese Buddhist temples in the United States? So this first clip is with John Yao. He is an art curator who put together this exhibit called Home Cooking, featuring contemporary Asian-American artists at the Lysan Keen Gallery in Boston. Here's John talking about what he calls cultural collisions and the origins of some of our favorite modern Asian foods. One of the things I discovered was that tempura was invented by the Dutch. Hmm. Now, there's two different stories as to why the Dutch invented. One was they wanted to eat fresh vegetables during Lent so that they invented tempura and then the other is that they didn't want to eat pickled vegetables and that's why they invented tempura so there's two kind of different stories now the dutch had a little trading post off the coast of japan so that was the way they got stuff from the west and also traded with the west was through the dutch trading company so that's mm. how tempura enters into japan and becomes oh. part of their culture. So oh. that I found interesting. And then wow. fortune cookies, 
in America were a Japanese thing from Buddhist temples, Japanese Buddhist temples, and then a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco starts to adopt it. They change it. Uh, I think it's sesame flour. It's slightly salty, and they change it to adapt for Western taste. Westerners like something sweet at the end of their meal. So again, it's a kind of curious thing of how these certain foods come to exist and that they didn't originate in that culture, they originated in the other culture. And then the other thing I read, which I'm really curious about, I've never been to Korea, is that they have more different ways of frying chicken than any other culture. And they have the different coatings. And one of them that I read about was I think it's like Doritos, you know, Doritos, they crunch it up and, and, and roll chicken in that and fry it. <laughs> I feel like you can't go wrong with fried chicken and Doritos. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> there are things I want to try to eat, you know, maybe once. I had crickets when I was in Houston in a Mexican <laughs> restaurant. It was the second time I've had crickets. The first time was in a Filipino restaurant in Santa Monica. So I thought, oh, I have to have crickets again. So I can tell the difference, but I couldn't really tell the difference. What did it taste like? Crunchy. Okay. They just come on a bowl, they're crunchy. You can kind of see that they're crickets. You know, what can you do to a cricket to disguise it? I mean, you just see the cricket. <laughs> I was happy. I was fine with it. I think some people get upset that they get to look at what they're eating, but I actually am very happy with that. Speaking of crickets, there is a company called Chirps that makes crickets actually easy to enjoy. They make cricket chips and cricket protein powder. And I must say, I thoroughly enjoy their barbecue-flavored chips. So apparently, crickets are not only high in protein and nutrients, they're also fairly sustainable to produce compared to our other livestock in terms of land use. I was lucky enough to have Rose Wong, co-founder of Chirps, on the show, and we had a blast talking about how it's actually not that weird in Asia to eat bugs. So right out of college, my co-founder and I founded a company to make food out of bug protein. And the reason why we did this is because we both had experiences eating bugs abroad. Um, I was in China on the streets of Beijing. I saw a street vendor selling all sorts of different foods, including a fried scorpion, like a fried scorpion mm. kebab. Uh-huh. Yes. I think we've all seen it. And then uh, I didn't dare try it, but I've heard it's crunchy and can be delicious. That's exactly right. So I was dared. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> I was like, fine, I'll try it. And I was so shocked by this exact reaction, which is I was so scared going in. But my first reaction is this tastes like shrimp, which really astounded huh. me. Funnily enough, is a week later when I got back to school, my college roommate, Laura, sent me an article about why the world should be eating bugs. And mm. I was like, this is insane. And so we started talking about it. And she's like, I had a fried caterpillar in Tanzania and I thought it tasted like lobster. Ooh. I was like, wait, huh. I had the exact same experience. This is so <laughs> weird. 
Um, All these bugs tasting like seafood. Exactly. Well, and so we started doing research because, um, and it actually makes sense, insects and crustacean are very closely related. They're both arthropods. So just really seafood mm. on the land. We right. just have now decided to look at bugs as disgusting, but that is something that has been socially taught, right? We know back um, in biblical times that locusts were actually a source of food during the famine. This is not something we're born with biologically to, to be afraid of, like snakes. Bugs are actually naturally food sources that we've just been cultured out of. But still, all over the world, there are about two and a half billion people who do eat bugs regularly as a source of protein. And so that's when Laura and I got really intrigued. We're like, wait a minute, this is fascinating because uh, not mm. only is it already a food source, we never knew about it, but fundamentally, it's one of the best protein sources out there, not only in terms of health, uh, nutritional profiling, but also just in terms of it is one of the most sustainable, if not the most sustainable protein source from at least an animal protein. So very, very exciting. So if you think about factory farming as one of the biggest hurdles or challenges we need to solve in today's food system, then we need to come up with different solutions to source proteins sustainably. So the cricket approach you just heard about is one, right? Diversify our protein sources and eat things other than beef and chicken and pork. Another approach is to simply source our meat better. So moving away from factory farms and working with regenerative small farms and ranches that treat their animals well, give them plenty of space to graze and thrive in, and do that all while healing the soil and the land. Someone I rave about constantly and will continue to rave about is Annika Wu. She's the founder and butcher and chef behind Bon Jerk, the Asian-inspired jerky and pork floss brand that uses regeneratively sourced pork and beef. Here's how Annika got started with her jerky brand. Like, I've always loved meat growing up. Like, I was a fat baby when I was, when I was like <laughs> eight and a half pounds. And my mom is tiny. She's shorter than me and I'm 5'3". And, you know, I was like a fat baby always eating all the time. But I stumbled on this jerky that my friends introduced me to. And it was this piece of jerky that you could only get like at this specific shop in the middle of nowhere. I don't think I've ever had that kind of experience where I was really, truly obsessed with one product in the mm. food industry, which led me to just do a simple Google research on like, what kind of meat is this? And how did they make this? And through that research was me discovering this whole side of the meat industry that I always kind of knew about in the back of my mind, but didn't really ask too many questions and kind of turned a blind eye on. But it's like, you know, not treating the animals well and not taking care of the land. And that was kind of the beginning. Did you try to find the recipe for that jerky? Yeah. So I actually called the manager of that place. <laughs> I emailed them too. And I was like, hey, would it be cool if I came by and toured your facility? Because I'm obsessed with your jerky and I just want to know <laughs> how you guys make it. And obviously yeah. I did not hear back. I mean, I was just this like naive like girl who was just obsessed with their products. And I went to the shop even afterwards and tried to like see if I could talk to the manager and they were just a little bit like weirded out. But this place also, you know, got some attention because there's a lot of people who are protesting against the, the treatment of their cattle and I can understand why they would be a little bit off put. 
I remember growing up, we ate a lot of pork floss, rosong, and there was a point where we stopped eating it because we saw on the news that they were using essentially sick pigs. And so cold turkey, we just stopped buying it overnight. And I just always assumed like, you know, that's one of the products is it's always just going to be like bad quality meat or just like unethical. But then when I discovered bonjour, I was like, oh, well, there is a way to do it. You just got to connect the right dots and do the legwork of sourcing from the right places. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so complicated because we can sit here and bash all of the ranches that are not doing it correctly and not even just in the United States, but like around the world. But yeah. one of the things that I've learned throughout this whole journey is empathy. You just have to like really mm -hmm. try to understand everyone's position in this industry and like how they got how we got here. You know, these ranches in, in Taiwan, there was probably something that led those people to make the decisions that they're doing, whether it's, mm. hey, like, I need to feed my family. So we've just got to get this animal processed and like, you know, and not saying it's like good or bad, but I always try to like think about situations like that from the ground level and understand. But yeah, it, it, it is every pork floss company that I've researched because I grew up eating pork floss too. I haven't been able to like trace it back really to a specific farm and know what their practices are. So after I did all that research on this one ranch and I found out like kind of the truths about like where this meat was coming from, that's when I decided, I was like, oh, I'll just see if I can make my own recipe and make this jerky myself because then I'll be able to just have it on hand instead of having mm. to drive like hours away. It started to kind of become something that I really, really loved and enjoy. And I started thinking like, whoa, like there's no East Asian flavors in jerky. Like it would be cool if I created this mm. like pho flavor jerky. So literally just like transpired from there and that's when I decided like, you know, if I'm serious about going into this meat industry, like I should know what I'm doing. And then I decided to take a good class at this local butcher shop, this place called Fatted Calf. And it was an all woman knife, pig and meat butcher class. And it was in Napa, California. And that's kind of how it, this whole like journey of me going into butchery started. So at this point, we've kind of hit on two approaches to alternative sourcing of animal proteins, diversifying what we eat and sourcing our meat better and regeneratively. The other approach is simply cutting down on the amount of meat we eat and replacing that with equally as nutritious and delicious plant foods. So Chef Marie Grappe from my hometown of Vancouver learned to love veggies the hard way through battling an autoimmune disease, but found so much joy and healing in a plant-forward diet that she started a meal kit company around it called Mana. The word Mana, I mean, my mom is quite spiritual and religious, so she was just like, Mana is food from heaven. Mm. She kind of mentioned the word when we were trying to figure out a name. She was like, it's in the Bible. You know, they always refer to it as like Mana from heaven. I'm like, okay, that's an option, sure. But what really said it off for me was, you know, I was talking to my dad about it. I was like, yeah, mom said like mana. And he's like, oh, it's kind of like minamana. In Tagalog, our Filipino language, it means to leave an inheritance or like passing something on. So 
Mana for me was really more like it is a gift as a source of sustenance just for anybody's body. But for me, it was more like we want to create that impact for the future because at the rate we're going, we are going to run out of food if we keep producing the amount of meat that we're producing. You know, let's talk deforestation, climate change, um, especially the idea that we are literally tearing down these forests to create farmland, to create grains, to feed animals before people. That is mind blowing to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And just the way where some company like businesses are doing it. Factory farming is huge, right? Around the world. There's such a need for it because so many people eat meat. So that's where we come along where it's just like, maybe you don't have to eat that much meat. Maybe you can just cut back. Mm -hmm. And if everybody does their part in cutting back, like we will make a difference. We will leave food for generations to come. Mm -hmm. Those were a lot of things that were running through my mind when MANA was created. It was to create the change of kitchen practices. I want to be able to offer people who work at MANA like a work-life balance. Mm -hmm. You know, we only work four days a week. We work 10-hour days, but, you know, it gives you a three-day weekend mm -hmm. every week. So like, you know, MANA, sacred meals comes from creating sacred time with the people you love mm -hmm. and the people you care about. Even though all of these founders are working on wildly different ventures and come at sustainability from different angles, one thing I respect about all of them is their hustle and their curiosity. You kind of need both to start a business. Peter Lee started with wanting to be a Starbucks barista because he thought it looked cool. And he went from there to building his own coffee roaster in his backyard and then ended up going all the way to Ecuador to meet coffee farmers. Turns out there's a ton of waste in the coffee supply chain, so he founded Coba Coffee to do something about it. Coffee, for hundreds of years, you get all your coffee beans, dunk it in water, and throw everything out. 80% of the bean is wasted. Well, we got to change this. And then on top of that, like that bean took a lot of work to get here. Coffee trees mature after 10 years. And if you like the Arabica stuff that's on top of the mountains, people have to climb all year round. There's no harvest season for coffee. It's every day because coffee trees ripen unevenly. So in one tree, you'll see one side that's ripe and one that's not. So you have to keep filtering through all of those trees all year round. So it's a very, very, very tough job. But you know what? I guess people do it because it's profitable. There's a huge demand for it. And, and people suffer at the bottom. I've met farmers and it's a very difficult job. It was like life-changing, I guess in a trite way, trite word. To see these farmers that I've met in Ecuador feeling so grateful that they even had a job like this and they had a great boss and they were able to sustain like their family. And, and again, breaking my Western like veil of like what I think I was told about, you know, poor farmers, but there's still a lot of gratitude that's, that's shared in South America and, and, and among people, but going back to this, the mechanisms, you get the green bean, you process it for a few months, you dry it and you depulp it from the cherry. That's the actual coffee. You ship it across the world. And then, you know, some, some guy roasts it in like some storage unit in Oakland and they sell it to us and we grind it and brew it. We throw 80% of it away. It's taken so long and so much work. Oh, we throw man. so much of it away and there's a huge waste problem. And how much of that dollar has really gone back, right? I pay like $12 per pound or something, per 12 ounces. How much of that $12 has gone back? I mean, we can all, we all know it's very small, but the reason why it's so small mm -hmm. is because the shipping costs. 
the logistical costs mm -hmm. and all the, the taxes and every, all the, the regulatory fees to get it through is, in my experience, 80% of the cost. The raw ingredients oh, wow. are also 20% of the farmer pay, basically, much less on a non-boutique level, right? So this was like a more of a small-scale boutique farm that I was working with. Why is so much of the coffee being thrown away? Most of the bean that's left is cellulose, which is just like wood, wood pieces. It's really what gives coffee the bitter kind of like stale taste. So that's why a lot of it is discarded. You know, we questioned that and said, hey, well, why can't we grind it all up just like chocolate does and then see if it tastes good. And the first time we did that, it tasted terrible. <laughs> right? Oh, this is why they don't do it. Is that like tree bark or something? <laughs> yeah, it was just like a French a French roast from Starbucks. It's just a nasty, like, just basically eating those Ash and meat. Sharpie. Yeah, they're just eating that, right? It's just not good. It took like two, three years uh, of figuring this out and making it work. We bought whatever we could with the little amount of money we had. We made a mess in our college dorms. And again, back then it wasn't commercial. We were just doing it for our friends and myself. And, and it took two, three years in Berkeley, especially. And if you work with cocoa butter, it gets everywhere. And once it gets stuck, it hardens. And then you have to scrape it all off. And it's everywhere. And it's just this like craziness. Then, Can you heat it up with a hairdryer? Yes. Yes. Wow. You know about this. Except we had, um, we were a little more fancy. We had the uh, heat seal guns. So like that's a little bit more oh. concentrated. Yeah, that was a crazy day. As we get to our last clip, I have to tip my hat to Ariana de Yuen, who is the founder of Forested. Ariana is basically reinventing capitalism to save the forests of the global south. I'm not even exaggerating. Her team works directly with farmers and foragers in Ethiopian forests and helps them package up and sell their products, like honey and gums and spices, to large corporations that need them. And they sell these at a premium for keeping these forests intact. It's kind of like a carbon credit system. And the magic of this business model is that it pays back the indigenous peoples who have been practicing agroforestry and regenerative agriculture since way before it was cool. A lot of these companies where their core products rely on nature. So we've got cosmetics, you know, food and beverage brands, obviously big ag, like the ABCDs of commodity trade, even pharmaceuticals. A lot of retail drugs are utilizing ingredients specifically from forests. I tell people this fun fact all the time, but aspirin is very much inspired from the willow tree. The good news is that all of these companies who rely on nature are starting, if not have already done a lot of economic analysis of the risks that their supply chains would be in if they lost access to these ingredients, like, you know, rubber for Nike or like cotton for H&M. I think they've already started to make headway in looking at how they can source from or help build like regenerative, say like rubber supply chains. In Ethiopia, we're focusing on foraging within intact forests. I'm super excited to see that like agroforestry is getting its time in history. When we started thinking about forested back in 2016, 2017, I think there was like a super tiny coalition of people who was super nerdy about it. And I would say it's starting to become mainstream because of players who have been pioneering this space. I do hate to say pioneering because I think what we're also trying to do at Forested is really elevate the voices and practices and wisdom of indigenous peoples because mm. you know all of this stuff like agroforestry, regenerative, like it's getting its moment in history in like mainstream media, but 
indigenous peoples have been doing this since day one. And so mm. I hate to say it, we're basically like repackaging things that they have been doing for centuries. So that is a wrap on our clips for today. But I will say these are just tiny slices of the full episodes, which I will link in the show notes so that you can keep listening. And as we close, I do have an ask for you. I would love to know who are your favorite Asian food influencers or founders, you know, Asian food brands, restaurants, food businesses that are doing really cool, sustainable work. I'm always on the lookout for, obviously, farm-to-table, farm-to-future-related things, but it's always extra special to meet fellow Asians out here. So drop a comment here on Spotify or on Instagram. Enjoy the rest of AAPI Month. Hope you support your fellow Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, and I'll talk to you next time.